Good evening. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Uh, the revelation related to the Supreme Court draft on Roe versus Wade drew strong responses from all sides and differences of opinion uh, related to abortion rights. Last night, a quickly organized protest of the leaked Supreme Court draft decision drew over 1,000 people to the state capitol where they heard speakers then marched down State Street. Wisconsin elected officials also responded to the leaked draft. Attorney General Call raised questions related to the enforceability of the 173-year-old statute. Call said that if the ban is allowed to go back into effect, the Department of Justice would not enforce it, though local officials could choose to do so. Call also predicted lawsuits would be filed seeking to bar enforcement by those local officials. Stay tuned, we'll have more on this story in just a few minutes. Dane County Supervisor and former Board Chair Annalise Eicher is joining the growing field of candidates vying to replace retiring Democratic State Representative Gary Hebel in the 46th Assembly District. The district includes Cottage Grove, Stoughton, Sun Prairie, and parts of Madison's East Side. Eicher formerly worked as the executive director of One Wisconsin Now, a liberal advocacy group. Eicher joins three sitting elected officials who will seek the nomination for the solidly Democratic 46th District, including Madison City Council President Syed Abbas and Dane County Supervisor Melissa Ratcliffe of Cottage Grove. The Associated Press reports that today, for the second time in the last two weeks, a Dane County judge ordered that the records be held by the Gableman investigation into the 2020 election fraud, uh, that they should not be deleted. Last week, Judge Frank Remington ordered Michael Gableman not to delete or destroy any records related to the requests. Remington made the order after an attorney for Gableman said that the investigation, quote, routinely deletes documents and text messages that are not of use. Today, a different judge appeared to be at a loss for words and repeated to Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, who commissioned the investigation and Gableman's attorneys, that they could not delete any records. The judge further stated that Speaker Voss, as the contractor, has responsibility for Gableman and could be found in contempt if he deletes records. Thus far, the lawyers requesting the records have received 27 pages of documents from Gableman. Three new members to the University of Wisconsin System Board of Regents were appointed by Governor Tony Evers today. Two of those appointees would replace current members of the Board of Regents who were appointed by former Governor Scott Walker. The State Journal reported that while the appointments are effective immediately, they are still subject to Senate confirmation, an action the Republican-controlled chamber has chosen not to take for seven of Evers' nine other appointees serving as regents. This means that if the GOP wins the governor's race, the new governor could replace all of Evers' appointments with their own and immediately have a strong majority of the 18-member board. Unlike the GOP-appointed members of the Department of Natural Resources board, the regents do plan to step down immediately. And those are the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Back in 2018, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources notified Dane County and the National Guard of elevated levels of a forever chemical surrounding the airport. The assessment and cleanup of the pollutant was destined to be intensive and pricey. 
Dane County is looking to make the companies responsible for the chemicals foot the bill. WORT reporter Cameron Constanzo has the story. Dane County is filing a lawsuit against over 30 companies to recover money needed for past and future cleanup of forever chemicals contaminating land and water in Madison. The pollution is located in and around Dane County Regional Airport and Truax Field Air National Guard Base. Nearby Starkweather Creek and Lake Monona are under fish consumption advisories, and a well near to the airport has been shut down since 2019. The high level of PFAS contamination has been linked to firefighting foam for decades at Truax Airfield. The lawsuit was brought forward by both the Dane County Board and Dane County Executive Joe Parisi earlier this year, though it was not filed until last week. Sarah Smith, District 24 Supervisor, told WORT. So it's just an opportunity to seek damages from the manufacturers that knowingly continue to produce and sell a product that could do harm to the people that live in our community. In the lawsuit, the county claims that some of these companies have for decades designed, manufactured, marketed, distributed, and or sold products with the knowledge that toxic compounds would be released into the environment during fire protection and training. The complaint submitted on behalf of the county mentions DuPont studies on plant workers exposed to various PFAS. Between 1979 and 1981, of female workers in their Parkersburg, West Virginia plant, Seven babies were born and two were observed to have birth defects. The complaint also alleges that beginning in 1983, 3M documented a trend of increasing levels of one PFAS compound, PFOS, zero, in the bodies of 3M workers. In an internal memo, 3M's medical officer warned, We must view this present trend with serious concern. It is certainly possible that exposure opportunities are providing a potential uptake of fluorochemicals that exceeds excretion capabilities of the body. Dane County is not the first to file a lawsuit against these companies for PFAS contamination. Last year, the city of La Crosse filed a similar suit for PFAS contamination near their airport. That case was heard at a court in South Carolina with nearly 500 related suits. Annalise Eicher is the former chair of the Dane County Board. You know, in looking at how this has played out in other states um, and other communities across the country, unfortunately, you know, PFAS uh, regulation and remediation um, could could take years. The state recently brought about a related suit after similar contamination was found in the city of Marinette. The lawsuit was brought forward by Attorney General Josh Call and is still working its way through the court. The amount claimed by the county for damages has yet to be decided, as the cleanup has been split between multiple municipalities across the county. This lawsuit is happening in conjunction with the conclusion of the first part of the remedial investigation of the PFAS contamination coming from Dane County Airport and Truax Field. The first part of the investigation has involved extensive drilling and sampling to test the soil in the area. EA Engineering and Plains Environmental Services were both contracted to help collect and process data. The next part of the investigation will involve groundwater samples. After all data is collected, the EPA will make a preferred remedy recommendation. Dane County is hoping that the bills for all this will be picked up by these companies through the lawsuit.
Reporting for WORT News, I'm Cameron Costanza. Monday night's leak of a potential Roe v. Wade decision drew a crowd to the Wisconsin State Capitol building in protest yesterday evening. Her turn reporter Zoe Sullivan was there to talk to some of the participants, find out why they were there, and capture a bit of the mood. Our reporter Catherine Garvins produced this report from that audio. Farnes, 60, owns a senior care business and called himself the oldest white guy in attendance. I just, I think it's horrible. It's a horrible decision. You know, anybody, anybody that thinks this isn't a slippery slope too, for gay marriage, for biracial marriage, for contraceptives, it's, it's going down that slope. The, the only thing I can say is we got to get, you know, if you walk down the street here and see all the young people, you got to get those people out to vote. Keeley, a new high school graduate at the age of 18, attended with her father, Bob. You came with your dad. Mm-hmm. Will you tell me about that? Well, I wanted him to come with me because he's tall and he could hold a sign. <laughs> it seems like a great father-daughter moment, but... It's a good reason to get out. It's a good, it's a good cause. It's a great cause. Aman Abashek is a teaching assistant and researcher for UW-Madison, studying journalism. He is concerned about the potential impact internationally as well. What brought me out today is utter disbelief and shock and fear of what is pretty impending. I think that these kind of, these kind of violations of human rights need to be fought together. And yeah, I had to, I had to come. I mean, I guess one more reason that I did not mention What happens in the U.S. regarding this issue spills over to other countries, by which I mean not only other governments feeling emboldened, but U.S. explicitly promotes anti-abortion policies elsewhere, especially in the rest of America. Lila Gale, 23, a barista at a local tea shop, has been active in anti-abortion efforts for 13 years. The... uh idea that my rights are being stripped away. You know, this is my seventh um, abortion rights protest, and I am 23 years old. So seven times I've almost had them taken away, and I just won't stand for it. How old were you when you went to your first one? I think I was about 10. I have gone to multiple protests. I have gone and donated to Planned Parenthood. I am here everything I can. I sign hundreds of um, organizations and like petitions every year. But being a part of the lower middle class, it's really hard to feel like my voice is being heard in the process if I don't have the money to back it up. Wisconsin is one of nine states that have legislation in place that predates the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. An additional 14 states have laws in place that can be used to restrict abortion rights. The Wisconsin State Journal reported today that State Attorney General Josh Call says the state has no intention of enforcing this law. This could change with the upcoming elections this fall when Call is up for re-election. The law currently in place in Wisconsin was ratified in 1849. It reads, Any person other than the mother who intentionally destroys the life of an unborn child is guilty of a Class H felony. Any person other than the mother who does either of the following is guilty of a Class E felony. 
intentionally destroys the life of an unborn quick child or causes the death of a mother by an act done with intent to destroy the life of an unborn child, it is unnecessary to prove that the fetus was alive when the act so causing the mother's death was committed. This section does not apply to the therapeutic abortion which is performed by a physician and is necessary or is advised by two other physicians as necessary to save the life of a mother and, unless emergency prevents, is performed in a licensed maternity hospital. In this section, unborn child means a human being from the time of conception until it is born alive. For WRT News, I'm Katherine Garvins. Her Turn contributor Zoe Sullivan gathered audio for this story. The time is now 6.19 and you're listening to the live local news on community radio station WORT. In 2020, Wisconsinites generated around 854,000 tons of food waste and scraps, which ended up in landfills across the state. With this statistic in mind, it's no wonder that last year the city of Madison committed to reducing their amount of food waste by half. To reach that goal, the city of Madison announced a new food waste and composting program where residents can bring their food scraps to locations around the city for them to be composted. To learn more about the program, WORT producer Nate Wiggyhaupt spoke with Stacy Reese, Sustainability Program Coordinator for the City of Madison. So, Stacy, just to start things off here, what is this new food scraps program? What can you tell me about it? Well, the City of Madison, you know, we've been looking at our various waste streams and ways that we can reduce our our waste streams to the landfill, uh, and specifically our, our waste stream around organics or food scraps. Um, we've been looking at that for at least over a decade. We've done a couple different programs uh, or pilots. You know, we had a curbside collection in various areas of the city. We um, did some drop-off sites at our streets division locations. Um, so this is just sort of another piece of the puzzle to look at ways to find solutions to divert food waste from the landfill. And tell me, how does it work? So people will be bringing the food scraps to, I believe it is the farmer's market, correct? And then what happens to the food scraps then? You bet. So um, we'll be set up at the South Madison Farmer's Market starting uh, Tuesday, June 17th, and Tuesdays throughout the summer or throughout the market season. Um, And at that location, we'll have a table set up. We'll have some staff members there that will be um, there to greet uh, folks from uh, who'd like to bring their, their food scraps. So you can bring your food scraps to that location. They'll check it to make sure that it's got all the right stuff in there. Um, you know, we want to be making sure that we're accepting the right materials of fruits, vegetables, coffee grounds, 
eggshells, gourds. Um, we will not be accepting meat, dairy, and we'll also be looking for some other contamination, such as, you know, those little produce stickers or any twist ties that might end up in there. So once we have the staff members verify that you've got the, the food scraps in your container, we'll go ahead and dump it in our bin. And then we will, at the end of the farmer's market session, we will go ahead and hand it off to a farmer. We've, we've been connected with Robert Pierce at Neighborhood Food Solutions. He's been a longtime um, member of the South Madison Farmer's Market and has a farm south of town here. And so he will be taking it to his farm site to go ahead and um, use his magic to then turn the food scraps into uh, soil amendment compost for his farm. Why reduce food scrap waste uh, in the landfills? What's the what's the benefit that we get from not putting this in the landfill? Well, we always look at every every waste stream as as we want to flip it on its head. It's no longer a waste stream; it's a resource stream. And so, specifically with food waste, you know, there are emissions considerations for putting it in a landfill uh, for specifically methane. Um, we're also thinking a little bit about how uh, how Food waste can actually be turned into compost, which is a soil amendment to basically, you know, put the nutrients back into our food cycle um, instead of putting it in the landfill. And then there have been other programs that the city has tried to implement before as well. I believe that there was a curbside drop-off in 2014 that I believe is still on hiatus in the anaerobic digester program. I want to ask, how is... How do you see this one going differently than the past programs that led to you wanting to half the city's food scrap waste by 2030? How, how will this be different? Yeah, I think the biggest concern that has always been a conundrum for us is where to take it. You know, we were fortunate that for a brief time we had a couple different um, options through some local digesters. Um, that being said, you know, the marketplace has changed for digesters that are, you know, dealing strictly with manure as their feedstock. Um, and so, you know, we no longer can take our food steps to the, the local digester. And so we have to kind of find another option. And so that's where we were really excited to connect with Robert Pierce and the Neighborhood Food Solutions Farm um, that was looking for additional feedstock to, to feed the, their compost. Um, so, so we've got this connection here. You know, we're always looking for additional places to potentially take food scraps to turn into compost. And we're also kind of looking forward to the future too. I think that if we want to think about scaling this up across the entire city, we're going to need a large-scale solution. And so, you know, we, we are working within county with their um, sustainability campus at Yahara that um, I think could be also a future solution for, again, that larger-scale um, compost facility that can take a, a greater amount of, of our food scraps. And then sort of on that same topic, obviously we have to look at UW-Madison, probably uh, you know, huge producer of food scraps here in Madison. And I know last year they had done an overhaul of their food waste collection, and I believe they are still looking for a new compost or new way to deal with some of that food waste. So are you in charge of any of that in any way, or are you uh, helping with that in any way and helping UW-Madison find a new composter? Yeah, we actually, it's, it's funny you mentioned that both the city of Madison with our drop-off sites at our city streets locations, um, those food scraps were going to the same digester that the UW-Madison food scraps were going to. And I mentioned before, the, the marketplace has changed a little bit in the digester space where they really just want to deal with, you know, manure only. And so both UW-Madison and city of Madison food scraps were then put on pause for having a place, good place to take it. Um, and so we've been in, in uh, 
constant communication with um, Travis Greenberg, who's the Zero Waste head honcho over there at UW-Madison to talk a little bit about what it looks like going forward and, and really trying to think of different, um, again, different solutions that we can do in the short term and the near term uh, while also looking towards the future for a, a large-scale operation that can take both City of Madison and UW-Madison food waste. And then just one last question on that topic. I know that there was the curbside composting service that the city had. I want to ask, is that still on hiatus here in Madison? Is that uh, still sort of on hold? It is currently still on hold. That being said, uh, you know, we, these grants that we're working with um, through the National Resource Defense Council and the USDA, these are what I consider sort of stair steps, right? So we're doing, you know, some drop-off sites. We're also looking at community garden drop-off sites. Um, we'll be doing a restaurant challenge through the USDA grant later this year. And so these are all different ways that we can start sort of, you know, socializing and normalizing, you know, the, the food waste hierarchy and how we can, you know, prevent food waste from happening in the first place um, by planning appropriately, you know, being creative and having food recovery as part of the solution. And then lastly, having a place to recycle or, you know, convert food waste into either um, compost or energy. Um, so, so with, with these um, smaller scale solutions, we, we want to start small. Um, we also ran into some issues back in our curbside collection days of, of contamination, and that's something I definitely mentioned before. We're going to have staff checking your food waste before we collect it at the farmer's market, and that's to address that contamination. We want to make sure that the you know, farmer that's receiving these food scraps to turn it into you know, nutrients for soil amendment. We want to make sure that those food scraps are, don't have, you know, plastic bits in them or, you know, materials that wouldn't be compostable. Um, so that's, again, once we start getting that um, behavior change across the city where people are excited to, you know, sort of separate, you know, they know what goes in the compost bin and they know what goes um, and can be collected, then we can start scaling up to some of that larger curbside collection across the city. And I think ramping up to that over time will help sort of work out some of those things along the way. And Stacy, do you have just any final thoughts for me? And where can people find this new composting food scraps program? And when will it be available? You bet. So uh, people can go to City of Madison Food Scraps and you can find information. It has resources on, again, thinking of the ways that you can plan ahead to reduce food, food waste in the first place opportunities to uh, have creative solutions and food recovery, as well as information on the farmer's market drop-off site. And like I said, hopefully stay tuned that we can have additional sites set up this year and, and hopefully next year as well. I've been talking with Stacy Free, Sustainability Program Coordinator for the City of Madison. Stacy, thank you so much for talking with me here today. All right. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more for you coming up in the second half of the show. How our video calls may still be listening to us even after we put ourselves on mute. Madison in the 60s will take a trip back to Truax Field to see what people thought of the airfield back in 1962. And boy, have the computer model sure evolved in the past few days. We've got a much different week coming up ahead than we foresaw back on Monday. Stay tuned for that and every detail you can imagine in the second half. But now we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. We will be back in a flash.
The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. The walls have ears may sound like the ravings of paranoia, but even if the walls don't, your laptop and phone certainly do. New research from the University of Wisconsin suggests that those omnipresent microphones we invite into our homes are harder to silence than you think. Earlier this week, 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing spoke with Kasem Fawaz, an assistant professor of electrical and computer engineering, about the technology that may be listening in. Kasem Fawaz, an assistant professor of electrical and computer engineering and graduate student Yucheng Yang, recently took a look at the mute microphone feature of popular video conferencing apps such as Zoom and FaceTime. They found that the software doesn't work quite the way you might expect. Kasan Fawaz joins us now by phone. Welcome to the 8 o'clock buzz. Thank you for inviting me. So what sparked this investigation into the audio behavior of video conferencing software? What what inspired you to do this research? So my brother was actually having a phone call with one of his customers, and he put himself on mute, and then on his iPhone you can see that notification, that orange bubbles still there. And he noticed, although he was, he pressed the mute button, he was still unmuted. So he called me, he said, you need to write a paper about this. So we started the investigation and back in March 2021, and it took us like six months to actually get to a point where we have some research findings that we can report. And what exactly did you examine? What are you looking at in, in this research? Yeah, so what we looked at, uh, we chose a set of popular video conferencing apps. We ran them on the several operating systems, mainly um, Windows and Mac OS. And what we did is we, we ran these apps, we, tr- we started meetings, and then we muted and unmuted the users. And then we checked the interfaces between these apps and the operating system to see if, we, if audio data is still flowing from these apps, or from the operating system to these apps. And we found that in the majority of the cases, although when you click the mute button, the Audio apps, the audio data still flow from the operating system to these apps. That doesn't say that the apps do anything nefarious with them, but when you click mute, these apps still have access to the audio data, and basically the data from your microphone. And how many types of software did you study? Oh, we studied a bunch of them. So we studied the popular ones. We studied Zoom, Slack, Microsoft Teams, Google Meet, Cisco WebEx, BlueJeans, Whereby, GoToMeeting, Jitsi Meet, Discord. And, I mean, if you think about it, this should be fairly obvious. In Zoom, for example, if I turn on mute and then speak, there's a dialogue box that pops up to remind me that I'm muted. So, clearly, my hardware mic is still live, even though I've hit mute. Is that right? That's definitely right. But the thing is, although that behavior might be expected in hindsight, but as a user's expectations, when you, when you click that mute button and you have that mute button thing scratched, you might have the expectations that, oh, well, they're not analyzing my audio data, my audio data is not flowing. But the audio data is still flowing and some post-processing is still happening on it. I mean, it is obvious now, but it was, I mean, yeah. It's, it's counterintuitive for sure. So I mean, it, one of the things that's, that's interesting in your study is you found out that, you know, it's one thing if the mic is still live, but that software, as you say, is analyzing the data and some of it is transmitting it back over the network. Tell us about that. Yeah, so it's not transmitting the audio data. I have to be careful about what I say here. We found that one particular case 
One app was sending telemetry data to their servers. So each minute they will record the, the low noise level, the average noise level, and the highest noise level in the background for the last minute, and then they will send it periodically to their, um, to their servers. And what we found is basically you can profile the background activities happening in a room or an environment based on a series of this data, say over like 10 minutes or 15 minutes. But since then, we have reported these findings to that company, and they have said that they have ceased doing this behavior. What is the motivation of a company to find out what's happening in the background during a uh, video I mean, conference? I, I don't think they have a particular motivation to know what's happening in the background. Their motivation is just to report telemetry data. My suspicion is something to have with their audio gain control. But what we have found, although the intent might be um, might not be malicious for the company, this data can be abused to infer background activities. I'm not saying that they are doing that to do back, to infer background activities. And don't I don't suspect that um, I don't suspect that they have interest in doing that, but they might. I see. Is this stuff that could potentially be hacked? I mean, if it's being transmitted, is that even if the companies aren't interested in using that data, uh, is it something that someone else could access, perhaps? Yeah, I mean that's that's certainly a possibility. Not, nothing is hundred percent secure, and this data is stored somewhere. If it's being it can be compromised on transmission and can be compromised as stored. Yeah, definitely that would be the, that might be a case. So you don't think this is something that's being sold to marketing firms, uh, you know, as a profit-making sideline for video conference companies? You think this is more accidental? I really can't tell about the, about the intentions of the engineers who implemented that functionality. Um, I'm pretty sure they have a legitimate use case for this, as I said, for their automatic game control or something. I really don't know where they were collecting this data. And and once we reported it, they stopped collecting this data, which tells me that they really didn't have a strong reason to keep collecting this data. It might have been an artifact of previous development cycles and it lingered there. I really have no idea. Now, most of this software has proprietary code. How did you determine whether or not the app was still collecting audio data? Yeah, so although they have proprietary code, but they're still using operating system interfaces or they're still using operating system functionalities. So what we did is we intercepted their interactions with the operating system and there we were able to know what they are doing and what information they're accessing. In the case of one app, we were able to actually, um, because they were using the standardized encryption from operating system, we were able to decrypt that traffic and see it in, uh, in plain text. But in cases like where they had like lots of proprietary code and code obfuscation, we weren't able to do much. And so you, if, if this is uh, benevolent or an accident, um, what are the privacy implications of this? What should people keep in mind when they're using video conferencing software? They, they should keep in mind that, that they are trusting these apps to behave well with their audio data. So when you click the mute button, somehow you're placing an inherent trust that this audio data is not, being, is not going outside your machine. This is what people need to keep up in their mind. If they don't have this trust, then they have to seek solutions like hardware mute buttons or operating system-based mute buttons. Now, if you turn your laptop or phone off, is it reasonable to assume that the microphone is also off at that time? Yes, as far as I can tell, obviously. Okay. But yeah. Now, I mean, one of the things that, that's interesting about this as a, compared to cameras, I mean, we're dealing with video cameras in a lot of uh, equipment now, but those are relatively easy to block. You can put your finger over it, you can put a piece of tape over it, and you know there's Definitely. really no way to get through that. But there's nothing really similar for microphones, is there? Yeah, that's a very good point, and that's something we really highlight in our paper. 
yes, there doesn't exist anything from microphones that gives users this physical feeling of protection. Like when a camera, when it, you block it, you know it's blocked, right? But if for a microphone, there, there isn't something like this. I mean, now people, and including our research group, have investigated solutions where you jam a microphone using an ultrasound signal, for example. But these are not things that are intuitive for a user. I think a more intuitive thing might be like a hardware mute button where you physically disconnect the microphone. I, I don't really know. I mean, there's some there are some software or some hardware rather that do have that. I've seen that you know buttons on laptops, for example, that mute a microphone. Do those work the way that you would expect? I would think so. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's interesting, I think, about this um, from uh, is that there's really no way to know a lot of this information unless you go through the kind of hardware and, and operating system analysis that you folks did. I mean, how what does that say sort of about the complexity of these machines when, when no one's really quite sure what's going on? Well, you have to really trust them. <laughs> <laughs> they are really complex. I mean, you have a stack of hardware and software and cloud processing that you're putting so much trust in these devices, their manufacturers, the third-party entities, every time you're using an app. Yeah, there's, there's an element of trust that you're just giving away. So, it, it is very complicated to study these things. So if people are concerned about this, uh, whether you know accidental or deliberate sort of corporate eavesdropping, what can they do to protect their privacy? What would you do? Let me put it this way. If, if, you, uh, if you were concerned, that someone might be listening in on a private conversation or collecting background noise data with the equipment that you have in your home, what would you do personally to stop that? I would, I would invoke third-party privacy controls, not first-party privacy controls. That kind of gives like a split trust. So instead of putting all of your trust in one place, you can, you can split your trust assumptions. For example, if I'm using like a third-party um, video conferencing tool, Instead of trusting their mute button, I would use a mute button from the operating system. Now, it's unlikely that the operating system and this app are colluding, right? So by, by doing these things, by thinking about like how, you, how you trust different entities, you can minimize that risk exposure in terms of privacy. All right. We've been speaking with computer and electrical engineer Kassan Fawaz from the University of Wisconsin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me again. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, if you felt a little light-starved these past several days, it was not without reason. The hourly readings that are taken out at the airport showed uh, basically continuous overcast from uh, the beginning of the month, really, out through yesterday evening. So I'm guessing there was... Probably some widespread relief this morning when the sun finally rose into a clear sky and actually remained visible. That had a salutary effect on our temperatures today, which jumped to 60 after having got stuck in the low 50s or upper 40s during the first three days of the month. Uh, 60 is still five degrees shy of the normal high for this time of year, but... Uh, given how next week is starting to look, 60 degrees may actually be looked back upon as pleasantly cool in a spring which appears now to perhaps jump a few gears after having gotten stuck kind of in late March, early April mode for a number of weeks. 
The only clouds we saw today were primarily short cumulus blowing westward around the southern periphery of the surface high pressure cell that finally cleared us, having nosed just far enough south to do that as it passed uh, to our north across the northern Great Lakes. Areas just to our south down in Illinois remained largely cloudy today. Higher clouds, which uh, were already visible through much of the day today, will continue to thicken up uh, going forward overnight for uh, what I'm sorry to say will be a return to cloud cover for another uh, 48 hours or so. As I mentioned on the Monday morning forecast, there will be a low-pressure circulation crossing the Midwest to our south tomorrow and Friday. And although uh, somewhat unusually, there remains a fair degree of discussion of dissension excuse me, on the uh, track and timing of the storm between the models still. The precipitation associated with it does look to hold off now until uh, later tomorrow, leaving most or all of the daylight period at least dry. What's less clear is just how much dry air ingestion there's going to be on the northern side of the storm as it passes, up in about the, say, the four to 8,000 foot region above ground level. And just how much uh, dry air up there is going to shield us from precipitation being generated further aloft. The uh, computer models are definitely have multiple minds on that score still. So while Friday may well see some on and off precipitation, we may also see a good number of dry hours that day and perhaps a wide variation in the precipitation amounts from north to south with the former drier and the latter wetter. Saturday then looks clearer and warmer with dry easterly surface winds being overtopped by an approaching upper ridge from the west. Out ahead of what will be a number of migratory low-pressure circulations lifting up the plains as a significant pattern change begins to take effect, with a deepening upper trough coming onto the western end of the continent. The individual waves that are going to be helping deepen that trough through next week will, uh, in complementary fashion, build upper ridging over us with near-continuous southerly winds from Sunday right out through Wednesday or Thursday, possibly even into Friday or the weekend, the way it's looking. The first of those waves passing northeast through the Dakotas and Minnesota on Sunday may give us another a shot of rain at that time, but with upper winds turning uh, increasingly meridional over the western half of the continent and specifically south to north on the plains to our west, passing systems may throw us only minor rains next week as cold frontal boundaries start to either wash out on arrival as they come towards us or uh, perhaps just hold entirely to our west. Anyway, if the more optimistic portrayals of the late week period off of the computer models end up verifying, we could see temperatures in the mid-80s here by uh, Thursday or Friday next week with dew points approaching 70 or perhaps higher, so that might make some of you pine for 60 degrees again. Anyway, back to tonight, high and mid-level clouds will continue to thicken downward from west to east as we go overnight. Uh, which I think is going to prevent temperatures falling too much below 40 degrees by morning, although uh, we will see easterly winds coming down near calm, so we might drop into the upper 30s. Tomorrow, um, the uh, high, will uh, high clouds will continue to thicken up through the day, with some lower clouds then beginning to pass as well, with uh, perhaps some filling in of the cloud decks later on. I think precipitation is going to hold off until the evening hours, perhaps arriving uh, sooner in the far uh, southwestern part of the listening area. Temperatures will be held to the mid-50s or so by cloud cover and continued easterly winds, which will increase to 5 to 10 miles per hour. Rains will then pass at turns overnight with, I think, fairly minor amounts, maybe just a few hundredths up to maybe a tenth of an inch uh, to the north. 
side of the listening area, with somewhat uh, more as you uh, go further south. Temperatures will hold in the mid-40s on easterly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Friday, passing showers will uh, be the rule through much of the day, especially the uh, first half or three-quarters of the daylight period. Uh, Again, with precipitation lighter north and heavier south, and again without huge totals, maybe another tenth of an inch coming out at that time. Temperatures will hold in the mid-50s on easterly winds up at uh, 10 to 15 miles per hour, backing more northeasterly later in the day as the low pressure passes towards uh, Indiana and Ohio. Temperatures will drop into the uh, mid-40s overnight. Rain should uh, mostly have knocked off by then, and skies will largely clear, I think, by Saturday morning. A day which will continue in a mostly sunny vein after that, with high temperatures in the low 60s on easterly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. High and mid-level clouds will again start to approach from the west going into Sunday, which uh, may see some residual showers from an approaching front out to our west passing into the area, say, in the midday or afternoon hours. Again, I think those are precipitation. that precipitation will be fairly light, though it will be showery. Uh, temperatures should reach the uh, lower mid-60s on Sunday. At the moment, at the station down here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 57 degrees. The dew point temperature is 39. Uh, Passing cirrus above us up at about 25,000 feet with just a few scattered cumulus left at about 4,500 feet. Uh, Winds are out of the southeast at 5 miles per hour. The barometer is falling at 30.16 inches of mercury. It's now 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to May 1962 for the death of Monona Terrace, the birth of public housing, and more. Stu Levitan has the headlines from 60 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, May 1962 Mayor Henry Reynolds scores two big victories on the night of Thursday, May 10th as the Common Council casts historic votes that will define the city for decades to come. First, the Alders vote 16-3 to to end any hope of a Frank Lloyd Wright-designed auditorium and exhibition hall overlooking Lake Monona at Law Park. When they terminate the contract former Mayor Ivan Nestigan and Frank Lloyd Wright signed in 1956, And right when the council is voting, Eugene Ormandy is conducting the Philadelphia Orchestra at a facility Monona Terrace was intended to replace, the UW Stock Pavilion. The following Monday, Reynolds calls an auditorium committee meeting to consider a big new question, whether it's going to be built downtown or in some outer area, such as across the lake at Olin Park. Reynolds wants to have the internationally renowned consultant Ladislas Sego pick a site, and by the end of May, the city has hired Sego and also retained a team from an industry trade group. Reynolds repeats his vow to build a facility as big as the building Wright designed, but within the $4 million budget authorized by referendum in 1954. 
and the council votes 17 to 4 to approve Reynolds' plan for the Madison Housing Authority to build 160 units of public housing. The MHA will own and operate 60 units on Regent Street between Murray and Lake Streets for elderly residents of the Greenbush neighborhood displaced by the Triangle Urban Renewal Project. It will also own and operate 36 units near the Truax Park Apartments, 36 units on Webb Avenue, and 28 units in South Madison, in a three-block area just north of Penn Park. Those future Truax Park residents may be on the front lines of the Cold War, as Airport Superintendent Robert Skolt reveals on May 2nd that the Truax Air Force Base will soon house nuclear weapons in a warehouse that is, quote, virtually foolproof. The weapons will be for potential use by the F-89 fighter jets stationed there. Skultz tells the mayor's Citizens Advisory Committee that the Air Force will likely remain at Truex for years and years and that the airport's highest priority is a new terminal. Troubled by reports that the Madison Club has discriminatory membership practices, the United Community Chest decides to stop paying the dues for its executive director to belong. Although there are no formal discriminatory provisions in the club's bylaws, it has never had a Jewish, black, or female member, and reportedly recently rejected the application from a distinguished Jewish attorney. The move to delete the $150 dues payment from the director's expense account is pushed by Ruth B. Doyle, a member of the Community Chest's Budget Committee. As the month begins, the dream of a University of Wisconsin art gallery becomes a reality, as the Brittingham Trust Funds present a million-dollar gift for its construction. The fund was established several decades ago by Thomas E. Brittingham Sr., a pioneer lumberman philanthropist and one-time UW regent, and his wife, Mary Clark Brittingham, a UW graduate in the class of 1889 and later a member of the UW Board of Visitors. The art galleries will be the first in a $3 million art complex. University guest speakers this month validate the assurance that Dean of Students Leroy Luber gave to the Board of Regents that, quote, extremists from both sides are welcome on campus. On the 7th, American Communist Party General Secretary Gus Hall draws a skeptical but respectful overthrow crowd of about 1,800 to the Union Theater. A week later, John Birch Society leader Clarence Mannion delivers a right-wing rebuttal to a crowd that is much smaller and even more skeptical than the crowd that heard Hall. On the 20th, the Varsity W Club names Madison native Pat Richter the Badger Athlete of the Year. The East High alumnus, with two years on the varsity teams in baseball, football, and basketball, could become the UW's first nine-letter athlete since 1923. Good news on Friday the 4th. The strike by Teamsters Local 695 that shut down $120 million in construction projects, including work on the Hildale Shopping Center, the Van Vleck Mathematics Building, and in addition to Madison General Hospital, ends after 24 days. From a starting hourly wage of two sixty-five, the union had sought a $0.66 cent an hour increase in wages and benefits over a three-year period, while the employers' group offered a straight $0.50 cents an hour increase over that period. The settlement, mediated by UW professor Nathan Feinsinger, sets a three-year contract with an increase in wages and benefits of $0.56. Cents. 
On May 27th, more than a thousand people visit the new Monroe Street Library open house, as the street has a branch library for the first time since October 1960. The $75,000 building holds 11,000 volumes and will add about 4,000 throughout the year. On Wednesday, May 30th, an estimated 20,000 people, one of the largest crowds to gather in Madison since the end of World War II, jams the Capitol Square as 50 marching units and a series of bands mark Memorial Day. We are dedicated to the principle that we shall be neither dead nor red, U.S. Representative Robert W. Kastemeyer, Democrat of Watertown, says during a solemn ceremony featuring a wreath-laying tribute, a reading of the roster of Madison and Dane County wartime veterans who died over the past year, and patriotic proclamations. An early morning tribute is paid at Forest Hill Cemetery, at the Veterans Memorial, and at the Civil War-era Union Rest and Confederate Rest. At a later service at the Memorial Union Terrace, flowers are strewn in Lake Mendota to honor military personnel lost at sea. And Wisconsin Supreme Court Chief Justice Grover L. Broadfoot dies at age 69 on May 18th, setting in motion events that will change Madison's political future. Governor Gaylord Nelson first offers the vacancy to his friend James E. Doyle, a highly respected attorney and former chair of the state Democratic Party. When Doyle declines, Nelson taps State Senator Horace Wilkie, Democrat of Madison, who is quickly confirmed. With Wilkie leaving the legislature, State Representative Fred A. Risser, who only days earlier had opened his campaign for a fourth term in the Assembly, declares his candidacy for the Senate seat instead. Risser is elected easily in November and will continue to get re-elected well into the 21st century. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our reporters this evening were Catherine Garvins and Cameron Costanzo. Your headline writer was David Aaron. Special thanks to feature contributors Brian Standing and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan is our engineer. Nate Weggehaup produced the newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night. W-O-R-T, Madison. Madison.